Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice and the Denver Herald. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading BIPOC Roller Derby. Members of Colorado Shiners Seek to Influence Conversation About Equality by Giles Clausen. From the Denver Herald, I'll be reading Chance Sports Levels the Playing Field by Bruce Goldberg. And Colorado Community Media Staff Wins Eight Awards in Annual Top of the Rockies Contest by Denver Herald Staff. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from the Denver Herald. This first article is from the Denver Voice. BIPOC Roller Derby. Members of the Colorado Shiners Seek to Influence Conversation About Equality by Giles Clausen. There was a lot of excitement when registration for the 2023 BIPOC Bowl Roller Derby Tournament was announced. The BIPOC Bowl, which takes place April 15th and 16th, is a Denver-based roller derby tournament exclusively for skaters of color to join together and compete against one another. Demand to participate was so high, it was a scramble for skaters from all around the world to snag a highly coveted roster spot. While other roller derby tournaments experienced a slow restart following the pandemic, the BIPOC Bowl, which is in its second year, filled all its skating spots in less than eight hours. There's nothing else like it, said BIPOC Bowl founder Samantha Mack, who goes by her derby name, Jams Bond, or just Jams. There is not another opportunity on the planet where people of color can skate with other people of color like this. Like wrestling names, derby names are both theatrical and revealing about a player. Some names focus on a player's skating style. Others evoke personality traits. All are designed to highlight the individual in a team sport. The BIPOC Bowl grew out of Jams's other BIPOC-specific derby venture, the Colorado Shiners, which Abina Watson Sirabo helped found. Watson Sirabo uses the derby name Nora P. Nefren, which is generally shortened to Norm. Norm and Jams are both trainers with the Colorado Shiners a team that is dedicated to introducing the Denver BIPOC community to roller derby and eliminating barriers to participation. BIPOC is an inclusive designation, meaning black, indigenous, and people of color, intentionally avoiding victim-centered language like marginalized or minority. Roller derby is a very white sport, Norm said. Throughout my 13 years, I've run into other skaters of color, and we kikied whenever we saw each other because we realized just how rare that was. It can cost $500 or more to begin skating in roller derby, and the Shiners have found ways to reduce or eliminate these costs for individuals who aren't yet sure about roller derby. Case in point, Jams has secured sponsorships with skating brand 888NYC, to provide pads to new skaters and also with the Denver Skates Shop to help new skaters secure skates. The Shiners also seek to address more than the financial barriers to participating in roller derby. Being together and celebrating tr- skating is tremendous, 
Tammy, Queen of Hertz, or Q, said, I look forward to Friday nights because I just get to be me. Q asked that her last name not be used for privacy reasons. According to Q, learning about the BIPOC training team opened the door for her to participate in roller derby. Through the Shiners, I know I have people who are on my side, who have my back, and who understand, Q said. Not everybody understands what people of color go through on a daily basis. Q had never skated in roller derby before joining the Shiners. She had roller skated in middle school and rollerbladed as an adult, but when she first attempted derby, she didn't have the skills to make it around the track without falling, let alone play roller derby. I pretty much hugged the wall the entire first night, but I was so excited and thrilled just to be there and watching everyone else. The practice was just really inspiring, Q said. Jams and Norm both said the Shiners team is special because it is one of the few places the BIPOC community can go without worrying about stereotypes, microaggressions, or worse. Friday night at the Roller Dome in Denver is always a night when they feel that they get to be their true selves. Roller derby can be intimidating. The rules are unlike any other sport. There isn't a ball to throw or catch, and it can be difficult for those watching it for the first time to understand the game. The sport looks like a mix between Olympic speed skating and a rub- rugby scrum. Roller derby is simultaneously artistic movement and brute force. Although the game is played on wheels, the players are on their toe brakes and in the air as frequently as when they roll across the arena floor on all eight wheels. Gameplay involves one jammer and four blockers from each team on the track. The skaters move counterclockwise around the track, and jammers can score points by lapping each blocker. It takes a lot of strategy, teamwork, and deft footwork to build a winning team, and it can take months or even a year to master the nuance of the sport. While other Denver Roller Derby leagues train new players, none offer the one-on-one coaching that the Shiners do. Jams directs each practice, but rather than stick with a concrete plan, she likes to build the practice around the individuals who show up each night. Some nights, both high-level and low-level skaters arrive, and Jams plans those practices on the fly to meet both skaters' types of needs. Jams' name is a play on the derby position Jammer, which Jams excels at. She recently won the tournament MVP at the Louisiana-based Y'all Stars Southern Skate Showdown. At nearly six feet tall, Jams has the unique ability as a jammer to skate with power, speed, and agility. She brings this experience and knowledge to every Shiner's practice, helping other skaters advance in their skill level. Norm is a powerful blocker who often takes on two opposing skaters at once. She coaches other skaters on gaining leverage and adjusting their positioning to effectively stop opposing jammers and break up opposing defenses. Q started skating in April of 2022 and has made impressive progress quickly. She's learning the rules of derby while training with the Shiners and two other Denver leagues. The combination of her dedication and frequent one-on-one training from Jams and Norm has helped Q go from barely being able to stay upright to skating backward, developing derby-level footwork, and learning to play as a blocker. She even is learning to referee derby events, which she believes will help her develop a deeper understanding of the sport. Q is hoping to play in the BIPOC Bowl, but that will depend on whether she recovers in time from a recent injury. According to Q, 
Her rapid development as a derby skater wouldn't have been possible without the safety and camaraderie she experiences in the Shiner's practices. Q said that it is impossible for a white individual to understand the presence of racism a person of color experiences in everyday life. For example, when she eats at any restaurant, regardless of the cuisine, it isn't unusual to have another patron assume that because Q is Asian, she's part of the wait staff. It's also common for white people to tell her she speaks great English, even when she tells them that she was born in the United States. Some don't believe her name is Tammy and demand to know her real name, a name that sounds more Asian. Jams hopes the Shiners can continue to provide support to its members, whether in or out of the roller derby arena. This is a space for people who recognize and understand who I am because they have my shared experience, Jams said. This is a space where you can be vulnerable with other people of color and black folks. Because the roller derby community seeks to be inclusive, it is common to see pride flags and Black Lives Matter flags hanging in roller derby arenas. It's also not unusual to see skaters wearing stickers on their helmets that designate their preferred pronouns. Despite the surface acceptance, when it comes to the BIPOC community, the roller derby world has encountered recent missteps. The Women's Flat Track Derby Association, one of the sport's governing bodies, had to issue new guidelines on diversity, equity, and inclusion following the 2019 East Coast Derby Extravaganza in Feasterville, Pennsylvania, which was hosted by Philly Roller Derby. Typically, officials calling bouts identify a player who has committed a penalty by referencing that player's number and uniform color. During the event in Feasterville, however, officials misidentified and confused skaters of color with one another. Philly Roller Derby said in an apology posted to Facebook that officials also identified those who had committed penalties by the player's skin color rather than by uniform color. In their apology, Philly Roller Derby said, These mistakes were not made in an attempt to cause harm, but these subconscious errors reveal a harmful systemic problem that we need to consciously address. These types of microaggressions and racist practices create long-lasting wounds in the BIPOC community and can't be repaired easily. WFTDA led a series of DEI workshops available via Zoom and issued a new series of inclusivity guidelines for all leagues. Jams said she does not believe there is genuine effort to allow the BIPOC community to participate fully in roller derby, which is why she said she has worked hard to create the Shiners, the BIPOC Bowl, and provide deeper knowledge of the issue. At RollerCon 2022, which is one of the largest roller derby events in the world, held in Las Vegas each year, Jams taught a class on how to make leagues more just for all participants and more inclusive for BIPOC skaters. While the class was open to everyone, only BIPOC skaters attended. But Jams' effort goes beyond seeking equal treatment on the track. We want to be a part of the Denver community, Jams said. The Shiners is a place for Denver's BIPOC community to come together and be in the community sharing our experiences and making space for each other. Norm hopes the Shiners and the BIPOC Bowl will help force change outside of the small world of roller derby. You come across people who are true allies, but then you also have people who are in their journeys learning about these issues we raise, Norm said. I think Derby really is a microcosm of the real world, both good and bad. We just happen to be throwing our bodies at each other. 
For Q, the BIPOC Bowl has already changed her life. Last year's tournament inspired her to dedicate herself to roller derby. The BIPOC Bowl was my first experience at a tournament, Q said. I volunteered because I wasn't skate ready. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. After that weekend, I was like, this is what I wanted to do. I want to play roller derby. The following articles are from the Denver Herald. Property taxes to spike for homeowners, Denver Metro Counties warn by Ellis Arnold. In just a week, homeowners across the Denver Metro area will be staring at numbers that may come as a shock. Their property values may have jumped by up to 45% or even higher for some areas. We do ask property owners to take a good look at the notices they receive said Denver Assessor Keith Erfmeyer, urging homeowners to let their local assessor's office know if they dispute the value they receive. Driven by a costly real estate market, home values, as calculated for property tax purposes, have spiked since the last time homeowners received notices of value two years ago. Since then, residential properties in the Denver metro area typically saw value increases between 35% and 45%, a group of assessors from across the front range announced in April 26. For owners selling their homes these days, the bump in home prices has been good news, but it also means owners are on the hook for higher property tax bills, Erfmeyer noted. Public officials are openly hoping homeowners will get relief from the state legislature, where lawmakers are expected to take action to lower property tax bills this year. It's a fraught equation, though, because local governments depend on property tax revenue, and too much adjustment could threaten cuts to their services. Property taxes partly fund county governments, but they also fund school districts, fire and library districts, and other local entities. Tony Damish, who heads Douglas County's property tax office, emphasized the urgent nature of the situation for homeowners and affordability. If the state lawmakers don't act immediately on this, then it will be a crisis, in my opinion, Damish, the Douglas County assessor, told reporters. Across Colorado, property values have risen significantly, Damish said. In notably affluent Douglas County, residential properties saw increases between 30% and 60%, with a median of 47%. Other metro area counties have seen high spikes as well. In Denver, the median increase in single-family home property values is 33%, Erfmeyer said. In Jefferson County, median single-family residential values increased by 37%, the county said in a news release. Arapahoe County's assessor, P.K. Kaiser, announced the county will see almost a 42% increase in residential values. Broomfield saw a median value increase for single-family residential of 41%, according to Broomfield County's assessor. How does that all stack up with property value jumps in recent years? Erfmeyer recalls talking about median increases that were largely in the 20s in Denver in 2015, 2017, and 2019. Douglas County, we had 30% increases in the 1997 reappraisal as well as the 1999 appraisal. That felt monumental at the time, Damish said. What we're looking at this year is that's at the low end. While property tax discussions often focus on homeowners, the spike in values could also affect renters in apartments, sometimes called multifamily buildings. 
though it's unclear by how much. Ask whether apartment landlords will raise rent because of increases in property tax bills. Damage said they may try, but they can only do what the market allows. And taxes is just one of their cost streams, Damish said, adding that landlords have seen increased labor and insurance costs as well. Erfmeyer noted, We've seen some historic increases in multifamily in the past that haven't been met with immediate rent spikes. The median total property value change for apartment buildings is 20% in Jefferson County, according to a news release. In Douglas County, the median increase in multifamily property values is 25%. Multifamily includes fourplexes and above in Douglas's data, Damish said. In an expensive real estate market, it seems like new property developments pop up constantly around Metro Denver. A common concern from existing residents is that new developments will cause their property values to drop. But market forces keeping property values high can also elicit fears of high property tax bills. Asked about the tension between those two concerns, Damish acknowledged it's a difficult question. Growth has always been, in Douglas County, one of the hottest topics. We've had thousands of people moving in for a few decades, Damish said. Once they get here, myself included, they don't like the growth. Erfmeyer pointed to the shortage of housing in general around the state. I don't think you could disconnect what we're talking about today from that particular fact, Erfmeyer said. That's one of many, many things that contribute to property values. It's the job of the county assessor's offices to establish accurate values of homes and other properties to determine how much property owners will owe government entities in taxes, a process meant to ensure that the amount of taxes pay is fair and equitable. The assessor doesn't set the tax rate, but determines the value of the property that the tax rate then gets applied to. Local government entities like counties and school districts set the tax rates. Property tax rates are officially called mill levies. The law requires the assessors to value properties every two years in June. The property valuation homeowners will soon receive is based on June 2022 data, near the recent peak in the real estate market. So even though home prices have declined since then, property values reflect last year's exceptional highs. Also at play is a number called the assessment rate, another factor that helps determine how much in property taxes a person owes. The state legislature sets the assessment rate. Joanne Groff, Colorado Property Tax Administrator, said she can pretty well guarantee that the property tax information homeowners receive next week won't be accurate. It's because your legislature isn't immune to what's going on right now, Groff said. There's been lots of discussions about providing some additional property value adjustment. I truly expect to see some adjustments and some relief in 2023, she added. She also advised the public to watch every one of your taxing jurisdictions that's going to have conversations about setting their mill levy. Despite the public concerns over property taxes, Groff noted that we still have one of the lowest obligations of property taxes of any state. Nationally, Colorado has relatively low residential property taxes, according to an analysis by the Conservative Tax Foundation. Colorado ranked 47th in property taxes paid as a percentage of owner-occupied housing value in 2020, according to the foundation. And while businesses pay more, their taxes still appear to be lower than the national average, according to the Colorado Sun. 
Colorado had the 17th best state business tax climate for 2020, according to the Tax Foundation. Colorado had the 14th best property tax rank for businesses in 2020, according to the Foundation. Colorado Community Media staff wins eight awards in annual Top of the Rockies contest by the Denver Herald staff. Colorado Community Media staff netted eight awards during the annual Top of the Rockies contest hosted by the Society for Professional Journalists, or SPJ, in downtown Denver on April 22nd. With 24 newspapers across the front range, CCM reporters competed in the large newsroom category, which included larger publications and outlets from Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming. CCM had two first-place honors. Evergreen Conifer reporter Deb Hurley-Bropst took the top honors in the category of obit reporting for her article on Mandy Evans, who gave more to the community than great food. South Metro editor Thelma Grimes took first place in the mental health writing category for a series she and two high school interns wrote in 2022. The Need to Succeed series broke down how the combination of college costs, social media, and parent and societal expectations is costing kids their childhoods. Several CCM members won second place honors. Luke Zarzecki took second place in the feature long-form category for his story titled, titled Uprooting the American Dream, Opinions Changing About Lush Lawns. For general reporting in a series or package, several South Metro staff members combined for a second place award. Former reporters Jessica Gibbs and Elliot Winsler, along with Grimes and current CCM reporter McKenna Harford, took an extensive look throughout 2022 at the Douglas County School District's termination of former superintendent Corey Wise. In Enterprise Reporting, former Littleton reporter Robert Tan won for his in-depth look at police chases that span over Douglas and Arapahoe counties. Arvada reporter Riley Dunn won third place for her in-depth look at parents in the Jefferson County School District. Dunn's article, Inside Jeffco Kids First in Janal's Fuhrer Over Students, won in the Education News category. For extended coverage, CCM's digital editor Deborah Grigsby won third place honors for her coverage of mobile home legislation in 2022. In Design, CCM's Tom Fildy won third place for single page design where he featured a photo page of a wildfire impacting bighorn sheep. Army's top female general visits her alma mater in North Glen by Luke Zarzecki. General Laura Richardson visited North Glen High School on April 27th to pitch students that the Army is a good path forward. Richardson, a familiar face as a former Norseman, is the Army's highest ranking female, a four-star general and leader of the U.S. Southern Command. Many of the skills and lessons learned at North Glen stick with her today. To think of my teachers and my swimming coach and the athletic director that helped shape and mold me when I was in high school and kept me going in the right direction was huge, she said. She touts the many opportunities and perks the military has given to her and said students can take advantage of them too. Some of those are the 178 different jobs to choose from, traveling the world, being part of something bigger than oneself, and serving the country. While at North Glen High School, she didn't get exposed to any programs that led to the military, 
such as JROTC, she became involved after her father introduced her to ROTC while in college. Introductions are key, and sometimes that exposure comes from spreading the word at a time when the Army needs more soldiers. We absolutely need more soldiers and more people to serve, Richardson said. Stars and Stripes, a media outlet, reported that Army Secretary Christine Warmoth said recruiting is a top priority of hers and that the Army missed the recruiting target by 15,000 people in 2022. As to why, Richardson looks to the job market. Historically, when there's a good job market, recruiting goes lower. She also said it's the life cycle of service. There are a certain number of retirees that need to be replaced. She hopes that coming home to Northland will help get more Coloradans enlisted and hopes teachers and other staff paid attention since the military is always evolving. Once people know about it, unless someone introduces you like this, you may not ever know what a great opportunity lies away out there for many of our young people, she said. She said it wasn't a directive for generals to head back to their hometowns to advertise the opportunities, and her presentation was part of her visit home. When she heads back to Miami, she'll be doing similar events. The low recruitment numbers also come as foreign tensions rise, such as the Russia-Ukraine war. But those issues aren't pushing the Army to give more attention to recruiting, she said. This is nothing new. It's not new for our country to face challenges we have had over the centuries, she said. Richardson also emphasized that the United States is proud of its democracy. Many of the foreign tensions are with communist countries. Communist countries don't abide by a rule of law. They don't abide by human rights. We do in the United States, and we should be really, really proud of that, she said. Richardson visited home to speak at Metropolitan State University's graduation in 2021, and at that time, Congress passed a bill that stopped short of requiring women to be in the draft. Back then, she said, that's a decision by our country. When asked whether any progress in the past year was made to include women, she said the all-volunteer force keeps the quality of the service and readiness standards up. People are volunteering. They don't want to have to enlist, she said. Tokabe is on a Seed to Soul mission by Alicia Hesselgrave. Ben Jacobs, a member of Osage Nation, and Matt Chandra's dream is to build a native people's food supply chain. And recently, this became a reality for them. The two have been in the restaurant business for more than 25 years and are co-owners of Tokabe, an American Indian-specific restaurant that has a Greenwood Village location and another in North Denver. It is one of only a handful of American Indian restaurants in the United States. Jacobs and Chandra saw a need beyond their metro area restaurants. Native people often do not have access to culturally relevant nourishing food, so they set out to meet this need. It took a year and a half, but in January, they began production for the Direct to Tribe Ready Meal Program. What we are providing is not just a meal, Jacobs said. It's traditional, meaningful ingredients. It's meant to bring joy, he added. Jacobs's name is rising nationally. He was appointed in March to President Biden's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition. The Federal Advisory Committee that aims to promote healthy, accessible eating and physical activity for all Americans, regardless of background or ability. 
I'm looking forward to doing my part in furthering food accessibility through Indian country and working with the incredible individuals I will serve alongside on the council, Jacobs said. Jacobs joins other notables on the council, including basketball great Stephen Curry and his restaurateur wife, Aisha Curry, former baseball player Ryan Howard, and former women's basketball player Tamika Catchings, among others. Takabe's dedication to its cultural roots were cited along with Biden's announcement. It has what it calls a seed-to-soul mission, meaning it aims to create meals that support Native people from beginning to end. The prepackaged meals are made with ingredients from Tokabe's Indigenous Marketplace, which is an online store that has ingredients sourced from food distributors all over the country. The meals are prepared and packaged at a facility in Greenwood Village and shipped to Spirit Lake Nation in Fort Trotton, North Dakota. As of early March, 4,400 meals were delivered and the next delivery in April will supply three months of food. Once the meals are delivered, the Spirit Lake community has the freedom to distribute them as they see fit. There are no stipulations for eligibility or parameters limiting how the meals are distributed. We are thrilled to provide the Spirit Lake community with access to healthy traditional meals, said Mary Green Trottier, director of Spirit Lake Nation's food distribution program, in a news release. So far, there has been a very positive response to the program, Jacobs said. He added that recently there was a family of eight living at the Spirit Lake Nation that found themselves experiencing homelessness. The meals from Tokabe were used to support this family during their hard times. Upon learning this, Jacobs said it validated all their hard work. This is a situation where individuals would normally be given a loaf of bread, but instead they were given a very specific cultural meal from native producers all over the country, Jacobs said. Food banks and the like support the donation of commodities or single individual items that often lack nutritional value, such as processed foods like chips or white bread, Jacobs said. The existing programs are great to get food to people who need it immediately, he added, but Tokabe wanted to build something sustainable while also providing foods that are spiritually and nutritionally valuable. Takabe's direct-to-tribe ready meal program is also groundbreaking because most federally funded food programs don't support full prepared meals as a donation. There are no acceptable protocols on a federal level to provide a multi-component meal, said Jacobs. To achieve this through a government program would have required so much time and so many voices and eventually getting Congress involved. After going back and forth with the Agriculture Department and other food and nutrition services out of Washington, Jacobs and Chandra decided to find an alternative. If we want to be the makers and takers of our own future, we need to do it ourselves, said Jacobs. Through federal grant building with Spirit Lake Nation and a 10-year friendship and partnership, the Direct-to-Tribe Ready Meal Program came to be. While it is federally funded through grants, it is not part of the food distribution program on Indian reservations. Going this route also allows for more freedom, Jacobs said, because they are not confined to specific parameters, as would have been the case if it were funded by an existing government program. According to Jacobs, when indigenous people gather to feast, it's not just a time to nourish the body. It's also a time to connect. Therefore, using culturally relevant foods and supporting tradition is a key proponent of the Direct-to-Tribe Ready Meal Program. 
Traditional food items include bison and fish, wild rice, tepari and pinto beans, maple syrup, and various cornmeals, including white, yellow, blue, and red, Jacob said. The prepared meals for the program have thus far been wild rice jambalaya with bison sausage, andouille sausage, chipotle bison chili with roasted sweet and purple potatoes, pumpkin butternut squash wheat berry risotto with roasted root vegetables, and green chili stew. This program is designed to create a Native American infrastructure, Jacob said. The prepared meal program is not only changing health, but also changing communities economically by allowing dollars to stay within the tribes. Our work is not about how do we solve for tomorrow, but how do we solve for years from now, he said. We don't just want a food economy. We need a financial economy as well. Jacobs told of a recent bison purchase as an example of the ideal closed loop. The bison were purchased from Fred Dubray in Cheyenne River, then taken to Osage Nation in Oklahoma for processing. This meat was then used in the meals that were prepared for Spirit Lake Nation, he said. Tokabi will continue supporting communities of color in diverse community and uses a business model that does not devalue the time, effort, and commitment of food producers. For example, when it comes to purchasing ingredients, Jacobs said he does not negotiate. If Takabi cannot afford to pay a distributor the true value of what their product is worth, he will find a way to raise the money to pay the desired value. Many other tribal nations are passed en route to Spirit Lake Nation, including Pine Ridge, Rosebud, Standing Rock, and Cheyenne River. The pipe dream is to build channels to deliver along the plains and drop off meals for all of these native people, Jacobs said. Eventually, Takabe hopes to expand to Oklahoma, where Osage Nason resides, and throughout the Southwest. For now, Jacobs invites everyone to celebrate alongside Takabe through mindful meals. Eat with tradition, support your own well-being, and support local food production. This is a community-driven experience. Learn about other cultures and celebrate our differences because it's important to know about all people's cultural relevance, Jacobs said. If we can all inspire each other, we can live in a much better world. Series Fest returns for a blockbuster season 9 by Clark Reader. After a bit of a pandemic slowdown, Series Fest, which celebrates emerging and underserved voices in episodic storytelling, is back bigger and better than ever, overflowing with top-notch television viewing for all audiences. We're excited to engage with everybody in this community about all the great stories being told, said Randy Kleiner, co-founder and CEO of the Denver-based nonprofit. We're looking forward to people getting together to be part of great conversations about all the exciting things happening in the industry. Running from May 5th through May 10th, Series Fest Season 9 features a wide range of in-competition pilot screenings, panels, workshops, and premieres from big studios, including Netflix, Amazon Free V, and Universal Television. In addition to an array of episodes showing, the lineup also includes fascinating panels like Actors with Disabilities Making Their Mark in Hollywood, What More Needs to Be Done, The Art of Adaptation Beyond the Book, and Turning Podcasts into Television's Next Big Hit with Orbit, Orbit Media. 
As usual, the event wraps up at Red Rocks with a night of special performances. This year, the evening features headliner Chelsea Handler and guests Jay Farrow and Adam Ray. There will also be a screening of Fox's Animal Control with star Joel McHale on hand to discuss the show and perform a stand-up set. Whether audiences attend one of the special events or just catch a screening, they're in for a television viewing experience that most don't have one that features the episodes shown on the big screen and the chance to connect with others. So much is happening in the industry right now, and that's what's so exciting, Kleiner said. You really have the opportunity to see the shows you love, meet the creators, and learn something you didn't know. With so many great options, here are two Series Fest events audiences shouldn't miss. Grown Screening, May 7th. Many viewers know Jocko Sims from his roles on shows like The Last Ship and New Amsterdam. But for Grown, Sims explored the power of storytelling in a different way, as executive producer, writer, and director. I've been a creator for pretty much all of my life, and this was something I've always wanted to do but didn't have the time, he said. But I took the time and made it a priority, and it has been such a ride ever since. Grown will be screened as part of the independent pilot competition, Comedy Block 1, at the C Film Center, 2510 East Colfax Avenue in Denver, at 6.15 May 17th, and will also be shown to local high school students as part of High School Day. The pilot, which won South by Southwest's TV pilot competition, is about 14-year-old Rogelio, Josiah Gabriel, who recently lost his father and is struggling what it means to be an adult. He and his friends Larry, Tristan Lee Edwards, and Chaz, Giovanni Christoph, decide to sneak into a strip club, leading to a reckoning about who Rogelio thinks he is and who he wants to be. Grown's participation in the festival is a sort of homecoming for Sims. New Amsterdam made its premiere at Series Fest back in 2018, He's eager to be back to share a story that means a great deal to him and hopes it connects with viewers, particularly students. I'd love for the youth to be inspired in whatever way they can, Sims said. When they see these kids making decisions, both good and bad, perhaps they can learn from that and apply it to their lives. Primo World Premiere Screening, May 8th. For Shea Serrano, a New York Times best-selling author and culture critic, Working as creator, executive producer, and a writer on Primo was a daily reminder of how much creative potential is unlocked when people work together. All of these incredibly talented people spent a lot of time working on it, and I'm thankful and proud every time I sit down to watch it, he said. I watch the show, and I see everybody's fingerprints all over it. Amazon will unveil the first season of Primo on May 19th, but its world premiere screening will be at 8.15 p.m. on Monday, May 8th at the C Film Center. Serrano and actors Ignacio Diaz Silverio and Cristina Vidal will all be on hand for a discussion afterwards hosted by Diaspora's Dino Ray Ramos. The show, which is executive produced by Michael Schur, Parks and Recreation, and The Good Place, is based on some of Serrano's own experiences growing up in San Antonio, It follows 16-year-old Rafa Gonzalez, Diaz Silverio, as he comes of age with the help of his mother, Drea Vidal, and five uncles. 
Since Primo has its roots in such personal experiences, Serrano was able to fill the show with specific references and jokes his family and friends will recognize. Everything from costume choices to a shout-out to a favorite eight A Tribe Called Quest song. Some shows become like a warm blanket, something viewers can turn on when they need to feel better about being alive, and that was the goal for Primo. That's my ultimate dream for the show, that Primo becomes a part of somebody's lineup in that situation, Serrano said. You are unwinding at the end of the day, and you watch an episode or two and see what the Gonzalez family is getting up to in San Antonio. For the full Series Fest lineup and to secure tickets, visit SeriesFest.com. Artists Run with Theme of Performances by Sonia Ellingbo. Performances, the recently opened exhibit at Town Hall Arts Center Stanton Gallery in Littleton, offers a cool picture of the artist's imagination when given a theme. Lyrics, a memory, bursts of color that look like musical tones to me, photos of animals that appear to be performing, costume dancers, abstract bursts of form and color. This collection, juried by Dan Oakleaf, almost creates a swirl of sound in one's head, just from looking for a while. And this looks to me like a great exhibit to take a child to. Make up a few stories about what's happening inside the frames. Maybe do a little dance in the gallery. This seems to be a particularly festive exhibit, which will run until the Western Welcome Week exhibit is installed in early August. It's a fine location to find a gift if you have an upcoming wedding, birthday person, or graduate in the family. These works are all small to medium-sized, in assorted mediums and techniques, glowing with color or more subtle, if that's what appeals. The first place winner, Splintered Forms, by Judith Bennett, is described as a hand-painted collage in acrylics and ink. It really dances in front of a viewer, suggesting constant motion, and the precise shapes speak of an artist's skill and control over her medium. Juror Oakley said this was a really difficult show to judge. Excellent work is the norm here. He is a Colorado native whose website works show a close tie to nature, as does photographer William Knoll with his warbling meadowlark singing with heart and pair of crested ducks who appear to be warbling a duet. Another photo with a real sense of humor is Carl Paulson's Daffy Dancing Crane doing the hokey pokey. It's a don't miss on the left wall as you enter. Some works are inspired by lyrics, while others picture performers, such as Peggy Dietz's traditional Tlingit dancer, who is very much in motion as we stand in front of her colorful, carefully composed photograph. Another Native American portrait is Pat Hartman's subtle tribal pride, showing an elder in ceremonial dress. Sally Vanderkamp's glass panel in the limelight catches lights in the room and glows, while Mary Wicks's Calypso dances in its frame. Sue Williams takes us traveling with her sunny Montmorte Art Market, where I thought I heard music in the background. The Depot Art Gallery, also filled with Littleton Fine Art Guild members' artwork, has a show that runs through April 30th, The Great Outdoors. Two short member pop-up shows will follow. Then, on May 16th, the 61st anniversary show will open at the Depot. The Depot, which is owned by the city of Littleton, courtesy of the late Varian Ashbaugh, became the Guild's home in 1976 with aid from a grant honoring a U.S. birthday. 
members and their families scrubbed and painted the old Santa Fe Depot, which had sat unused in Bega Park for a period, until it was moved to the present Powers Avenue site by Ashbaugh, a businessman who sculpted in his spare time. Exhibits change often, and prospective members are encouraged to inquire about joining this active group. The Stanton Gallery at Town Hall Arts Center, 2450 West Main Street in downtown Littleton, is open 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday and during performances. The Depot Art Gallery, 2069 West Powers Avenue in downtown Littleton, is open from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Tuesday through Sunday. Lakewood EV Earth Day was a snowy block party for the community by Joe Davis. A smattering snow did not stop a small crowd from attending Earth Day celebrations in Lakewood. The April 22nd event at Heritage Lakewood Belmar Park offered a mix of educational opportunities paired with food and music. Lakewood Sustainability Manager Jonathan Watchell said the event, which is in its 13th year, started as a workplace fair to help city employees learn about conservation and sustainability. Over the years, we also wanted to make sure that it was just a fun community event to bring people together to celebrate the love of our community, Watchell said. He and others underscored the educational aspects of the day. The Lakewood Forestry Department gave away brochures with information on local plant life. The department had a few succulents on hand, packs of wildflower seeds, and a ponderosa pine seedling. The aim was to encourage people to grow native plants that typically need less water than non-native species and are better for Jefferson County area yards. The Jefferson County Public Library gave away bookmarks with live seeds embedded in the paper. People can plant the bookmarks to see what grows. The library also announced registration for summer programming themed Cultivate Kindness. You can register on the library's website. Lakewood Arts, Parks, and Recreation employees demonstrated yoga skills and awarded flexible folks with fidget spinners emblazoned with the department's contact information. They wanted people to know registration is open for programs, classes, and leagues, including activities for seniors. One of the city's partners, Excel Energy, gave away free light bulbs. LED lights, which last longer, are made primarily of a non-glass casing, use significantly less power than regular light bulbs. Excel also showcased a rehabbed solar-powered tiny house. Excel officials said they also wanted to bring attention to incentives, including a $500 rebate on electric vehicle charging stations and to take feedback on the recent rate hikes. Meanwhile, artisans sold their wares and just hang, hung out. Flower Street Farm had tons of info on bees, honey, beeswax, and more. Tatican Tree Company brought in a mushroom model, like one that several people around the booth had seen in their yards. If you see this, the tree is in trouble, the Tatican representative said, going on to describe the many possible problems that could be underlying. Face Nectar was responsible for all the kids running around with beautifully emblazoned faces. Another boutique, Minerals and Metals, was all about the Casa Bonita opening. Among a booth full of rocks and crystals were South Park characters made of obsidian. Other vendors included the Environmental Protection Agency, which brought pencils made of recycled tires. Undestructible, a nonprofit organization, sold de decorative and sustainable planters and products to raise money and awareness for victims of domestic violence. 
Most of the afternoon was framed by the sounds of the big hooray bluegrass band from Golden, which played despite the cold weather. They made the day feel a little warmer in the snowy landscape. Significant space at the celebration was dedicated to the electric vehicles. Watchell says it's the second year that electric cars are included in the festival. Drive Clean Colorado is an organization that helps promote the transition to electric vehicles, he said. They do a lot of public outreach. They also do a lot of work to help local governments with the transition in terms of how to electrify your fleet and that type of thing. Drive Clean Colorado was a partner in the celebration and sponsored the Ride and Drive. The public got a chance to ride in electric vehicles throughout the day, some driven by local owners. Locals fear Kroger-Albertson's merger will hurt jobs, decrease consumer choices, by Corrine Westerman. Golden's Safeway is a staple for local shoppers. People walk there from the surrounding neighborhood and the nearby School of Mines campus. About 80 employees work there, handling everything from life-saving prescriptions to birthday cakes, according to staff member Tom Olson. But if Safeway and King Super's parent companies merge, Golden's Safeway could close, leaving those who rely on it adrift. Overall, many local employees and shoppers believe the proposed merger would hurt Coloradans by eliminating jobs, reducing competition, raising prices, and creating food deserts. It's going to get worse, said Olson, who's worked at the Golden Safeway for seven years. When you take away competition, prices go up and you lose jobs and opportunities. On April 24th, Golden and Lakewood area shoppers and grocery store employees met with Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser about the proposed Kroger-Albertson's merger, urging Weiser to do everything he could to stop it. Last fall, Albertson's announced that it was considering a $25 billion takeover bid from Kroger. The company's planned to finalize the merger in early 2024, if state and federal regulators approve it. Albertsons operates roughly 100 Safeway stores across Colorado, while Kroger operates about 150 King Supers and City Market stores in the state. If the merger goes through, the new company would control roughly 50% of Colorado's grocery options, according to Colorado Public Radio. On a website dedicated to promoting the merger, Kroger promised it would dedicate $500 million to lowering prices, $1.3 billion to enhancing Albertson's stores, and another $1 billion towards raises and benefits for employees. Rodney McMullen, Kroger's chairman and chief executive officer, described how combining the two chains brings together two purpose-driven organizations to deliver superior value to customers, associates, communities, and shareholders. But Weiser told the 40-some attendees sitting in the Golden High School Library, that if states or the federal government believe the merger is anti-competitive, they have the authority and obligation to stop it. We are the people's lawyers, Weiser said of his office. We're looking at this merger with only the people of Colorado in mind. However, Weiser and his colleagues must do their homework first, meeting with the aforementioned groups, gathering data, examining past mergers, etc., He said they're planning to host more listening sessions like this during 2023, with the next two in Vail and Cortez. 
Local shoppers like Lakewood's Joan Jacobson worried that the Kroger-Albertsons merger would turn out just like Kroger's investment in Lucky's Market. While its 2016 initial investment more than doubled the number of Lucky's stores, Kroger ultimately pulled the plug and divested in 2019. Jacobson says she drives by a former Lucky's in Wheat Ridge frequently, which is still empty. It just tells me they can't be trusted. They say one thing and do something else, Jacobson said of Kroger. Talk is cheap. Trustworthiness is costly, and actions speak louder than words. Weiser and the attendees discussed Golden's grocery options, as the city has both a Safeway and a King Supers, along with a natural grocer's. So while Golden overall wouldn't be a food desert, it would still have fewer grocery and pharmacy options if its Safeway closed. Plus, as Olson pointed out, those who walk to the Safeway out of necessity would have to find transportation to the King Supers, which is 1.7 miles away from the Safeway. Additionally, the 80-some employees at Safeway would be out of jobs. Olson described how he lost his job in the Albertson-Safeway merger and had to take a lower-paying position at another Safeway. Christopher Lay, a 28-year employee at the Golden King Supers, believed the merger would hurt his commodity and his union, United Food and Commercial Workers Local 7. The union represents about 20,000 members across Colorado and Wyoming, offering pensions and other benefits. Lay described how the merger would shrink the pool of workers who contribute to the pension fund. Ultimately, Lay and others emphasized, the merger only benefits shareholders and private equity, not workers or consumers. Weiser invited as much public feedback as possible, saying those who couldn't attend the April 24th listening session can still provide comments online. To take the online survey or for information on future listening sessions, visit coag.gov slash grocery merger. Parking tickets will cost $100 on Golden's 10th Street by Kareen Westman. Golden is increasing parking tickets from $30 to $100 along 10th Street. The increased violation fees begin June 15th and will last through the Labor Day weekend. The fees impact 10th Street between Washington Avenue and the Golden Community Center, and apply to a few surrounding lots as well. It was part of an updated fee schedule from the city to address parking concerns. During the April 25th City Council meeting, officials discussed how, because it's only a $30 ticket, people sometimes preferred to pay the fine rather than find alternate parking. So, Golden staffers hope a $100 ticket will disincentivize that behavior. It's a massive strain on an already stressed parking situation, said Mark Donahue, Golden Police Department's support services commander. The increase is part of a pilot program. City staff will monitor the impacts in the area and use that data to decide how to modify future management plans. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.